I've been doing a series of uh, sermons on Wednesday nights since 2016 on uh, the greatest chapters in the Bible. And these are chapters that stand out in importance uh, for us as New Testament believers. And tonight I want to do another one in the brief time that we have here uh, to oversee it. Uh, this um, Sunday I'm speaking on Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. So that's a very big topic. So tonight I want to do a uh, uh, a study on healing that's in the atonement. That is what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. One of them is healing in the atonement and uh, an extremely important topic for us as believers. Uh, that will support what we're doing this Sunday in far more detail. So tonight is not much of a sermon as it is a Bible study in Isaiah 53. So if you have your Bibles out, please take them out. You may want to take some note paper too. Uh, so let's turn to Isaiah 53. I have mine all printed out here, and I'll add some other scriptures that you can write down. Um, Isaiah 53 has been called the most important chapter in the Old Testament, and it's for a good reason. It is a chapter on the atonement where Jesus makes uh, humanity's case before the Godhead at peace, because prior to what Jesus did at Calvary, we were not at peace with God. We were at enmity with God, the entire human race, uh, because of the Adam's sin of spiritual death in all of us. And Jesus, of course, uh, the perfect sacrificial lamb is presented in the final sacrifice to make peace with humanity and the Godhead forever. So the cross and the resurrection are really the foundation of our Christianity. It's the foundation of why we believe what we believe. It means everything. Everything from it is what we have now become for those who would call upon Jesus as their Savior. So all through the Bible in the Old Testament, there have been messianic prophetic scriptures that reveal the Messiah. It all starts in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where uh, the, uh, the Lord God curses the, the uh, serpent and, and says that, uh, he will bruise you on your head. And the he that he's referring to is the Messiah, that Jesus one day would come and crush Satan and uh, for eternity affect him. So all through the Old Testament, Satan is on the outlook for who is this Messiah who is going to crush me. I have to get him first. And of course, he, he fails because it's a hidden uh, in the mind of, of the Godhead of how this is going to happen that early in the Bible. So all through the Bible, we have a progression in the Old Testament uh, revealing more and more about who this Messiah is. Who is this one that's going to crush the evil one? At first, it's very, very vague uh, about him, very gray, and we don't really have a clear picture of much about him. But as the Bible progresses, the Messiah becomes more and more clearer on his person, his mission, what he will accomplish, especially in fulfilling these Old Testament messianic prophecies. So by the time we arrive now at Isaiah 53, uh, in the history of God's prophetic timeline, we're going to know quite a bit about this Messiah. And in Isaiah 53, we're even going to learn what he even looks like. How about that one? So, um, actually this starts at Isaiah 52, verse 13, and goes into chapter 53. Um, 
Your Bible was not written with chapters and verses. Very nice people put that there in the Middle Ages to help us. The Word of God is inspired by the, by the Holy Spirit, but not the chapters and verses. So sometimes you have chapters starting where they shouldn't start, and they end where they shouldn't end. So really Isaiah 53 starts at Isaiah 52, verse 13. So what we're going to do tonight is focus here on these themes of Isaiah 53, and we're going to focus on key words that are very important for us in this chapter that really say volumes to us. And I'll give you also scriptures you can look up to. So um, this chapter has four separate divisions. How about that? The first division is from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, into Isaiah 53, verse 3. So let's start with that, Isaiah 52. I think I'm reading out of the... New American Standard. I may have picked the wrong translation, but that's okay. It'll work. All right, Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Here we have the word behold, which is a word that points attention to something. Look, look at this, look at this, look at this. It points attention. It gets our attention uh, when it's written down like this. Servant here, my servant will prosper. Servant implies doing the will of, of God. So here we have Jesus, the servant on whole will prosper and be exalted. And, uh, and the will prosper means he will succeed. Not maybe, but he will succeed in the assignment that he was sent to do. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let's try that again. Chapter 15, verse 45, Paul calls Jesus the second Adam, which means he will not fail in his mission like the first Adam failed. As the first Adam brought spiritual death to all mankind, the second Adam will be a giver of spiritual life and undo what the first Adam had done. Uh, just to throw a couple of scriptures at you. Hold them as a reference. I'll just read them. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, God exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every other name, as we just read here in Isaiah. And John, in John 12, verse 32, Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people unto myself. So as we see here in Isaiah, he will be highly lifted up and greatly exalted. Okay, so, uh, as we go to verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred beyond that of a man, and his form became, uh, his form beyond the sons of men. Uh, in other words, he would be subject to the deepest trial and humiliation that could be possible. And the word astonished here, what it tells us about that we would be astonished, that it's the idea we would be struck silent, unable to speak from the sudden astonishment of what we would see in him in his mission on the cross. And the word marred here uh, speaks of uh, defacement. He would be defaced. It speaks of destruction. And it says more than any man. In other words, he would no longer hold the resemblance of a man. And it talks about his form beyond the sons of men or sons of mankind. In other words, uh, you would uh, not look at him as a member of the human family any longer. 
the, not just a physical suffering. Hey, there may have been people crucified who may have physically suffered more. We don't know. But this is beyond a physical suffering of what his appearance was like in the natural. It was the suffering in the spirit realm for what he was about to accomplish. And it's also when you're looking at Jesus on the cross in suffering, you're looking at what mankind looks like in spiritual death due to the nature of his sin. That's a picture of us. That's a picture of our ugliness. And we could do nothing for ourselves and yet he did this for us because we were unable to. That's my sin nature on the cross. Uh, I remember when Mel Gibson did his uh, famous film on uh, the suffering of Christ, um, some snotty reporter said, well, who put Jesus on the cross? Mel looked at him and said, I did. My sin put him there. Good for you, Mel. Pretty good. Good theology. That's exactly correct. So he becomes us, what we look like in the spirit realm, all mankind, helpless to help ourselves on the cross. So here, verse 15. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. And the picture here is that the final results of this sacrifice, this suffering, is that he would redeem, that is, buy back from hock, buy back from bondage, the nations of the humanity of all times, but with his precious blood something more precious than silver and gold. And the word thus here, when it starts off, some translations have. So, that's a conclusion indicator in literature. When you see the word thus or so, it means a conclusion is being drawn. And the conclusion here, he will sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle is a sacrificial term that talks about little splatters of blood, uh, which can be translated in from Hebrew purify, cleanse, so the point here is that blood is required, and Jesus had sinless blood. Uh, some scriptures to back that up, just briefly, in uh, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it says, it is by blood, by, blood, by reason uh, of the life that makes atonement. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, it tells us we have been bought with a price. There's the concept then of the sacrifice. And in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he tells us we are not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver, uh, but with precious blood of a lamb unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. So we see here then, it also says, a king shall shut their mouths. That means showing admiration, uh, showing veneration. He is uh, far greater than they are. And it also shows on what have not been told them they would see. In other words, this was hidden to mankind, hidden from the minds and wisdom of men, and, and the evil one as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, for we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of which God presented before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age, that doesn't mean kings, that means demons, which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. By doing that, they destroyed themselves. So, very powerful statement there being made, what's going to be uh, when Jesus goes to the cross. So, now we're into um, Isaiah 53, verse 1. There's no break here in chapters. Uh, your Bibles might have the exalted servant 
in uh, chapter 52, verse 13. It might be a little heading. Then there might be another heading at the beginning of chapter 53. My Bible has that. And it says, the suffering servant. So in chapter 53 here, verse 1, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now in this chapter, we have three separate divisions that are going to introduce the Messiah to us as a report, which means it refers to the prophetic message of the coming of the Messiah, given by the Old Testament prophets, and it's a rejected message in Jesus' day to the religious leaders of his day. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Arm of the Lord is a spiritual picture. The arm is a picture of strength to execute purpose. And this is the um, omniscient power of God, the all power of God through the Messiah. And Jesus, uh, we see here, this Isaiah 51 verse, 53 verse 1, Scripture is quoted in John's gospel, uh, in John chapter 12, verse 37 and 38. But though he had performed so many signs in their sight, they were still not believing in him. This happened so that the word of Isaiah the prophet, we just read it, which he spoke would be fulfilled. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So Jesus, of course, not received in his day. We'll talk more about that later. All right, in verse 2 here. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a dry ground who had no stately form or majesty, that we would look at him, one translation, that we would be attracted to him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. This is very interesting. We see here in uh, verses 2 and 3 that his appearance is rejected. Uh, He disappoints them. Jesus is not what they expected. They expected someone to overthrow the Roman Empire. They didn't realize this was the Lamb of God. You want the Lion of Judah. That's his second coming, which they had no concept of. So here he disappoints them and their expectations. It says he grew up, and which means he was humble in appearance. There was nothing in his background growing up that should lead the Jews to believe this is a deliverer. How about that? His background did not conform to their expectations. Again, they're looking for the second coming at the first coming. Uh, They did not see or have any concept of the first coming. And they didn't realize his kingly genealogy and his teachings at the temple at 12 years old. That should have been a real clue. No. Now remember here in Isaiah 53, as I said before, we're even going to know what Jesus looks like. Check this out. He has no stately form or majesty that we would be attracted to him. That means he had no beauty, no external glory, no observable royalty or gorgeous array. Uh, In fact, you have that amazing scripture uh, in uh, Mark chapter 6 where people were questioning, who is this guy? He performed miracles and everything here. And it says, is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, uh, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters are not here with us, and they took offense at him. Well, how about that? So Jesus had four other brothers and at least two sisters. Okay. And they took offense 
at him. He wasn't what they expected. And we see here no, uh, that we would be attracted to him. Now that could be uh, translated that we should look intently upon him. In other words, when you looked at Jesus, there was nothing to look at that would dazzle you or attract you to him. If he walked down the road, you wouldn't go, it's Jesus. You would not have that reaction. There was nothing to your five senses to lead men to desire him. Jesus in the flesh was nothing to look at. How about that? How about that? Because if you were going to be attracted to him, you have to be attracted by faith. Isn't that something? And has it changed? No. To him, to us, to a lot of people in this world today, there's, he's nothing to look at. But to those by faith, he's wonderful. So nothing apart from faith would interest you to him. You know, in fact, if you remember raised Roman Catholic, they just have this picture called the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Anybody remember that? Right? He has a Sacred Heart. If you look at the face, this artist who did this, and you put your, if you have that home, if you take your hand and go under his nose, from the nose up, it's a woman you're looking at. They made him incredibly effeminate, beautiful to look upon. That is not what he looked like. A very average looking Jew, if something even maybe not average. How about that? And we see here it talks about in verse 2, a root out of a dry ground or a parched ground. Root means it's something that's spiritually healthy. He comes from the Jewish righteous line that would one day give birth to the Messiah. And for such a tender uh, uh, root to grow after so many years, it would have to be an awfully strong one. So this tender shoot is uh, also, the word tender shoot, is a first century uh, Jewish idiom, which means a suckling child. In other words, prophetically, it's saying he's going to come as a baby in a manger. That's how you're going to get to know this Messiah when he comes. And out of a parched ground, that speaks of the spiritually dry ground of Israel at that time that had, was no, had no spiritual water, uh, no prophet spoke after Malachi other than John the Baptist. They were a decayed spiritual nation, and it would take God and God alone to produce such a tender shoot with a fresh new source of life. Men get no credit for this. God's going to do this all himself. Okay, verse 3 here. We're getting into some of the real important stuff here. And he was despised and forsaken by men, a man of great pain, familiar with sickness or acquainted with sickness. And like one whom the people hid their faces, he was despised, and we had no regard for him. Now, this should read in the original Hebrew, a man acquainted, I'm sorry, a man of pains acquainted with sickness. Uh, tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So he had become a man of pain, the pain of humanity in sickness and disease, acquainted with sickness. No scripture ever tells us that Jesus was sick. So this has to speak of his redemptive work on the cross, becoming sickness for us on the cross, that he would take on humanity's frailty of sickness. It says here he was despised. That is, 
Satan used uh, prideful religious men who love their pride, who love their spiritual death, and would despise anyone that would free them from it. Forsaken of men. Historically, isn't this the way the world has always treated Jesus? In uh, John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. So we see here, it says then on here, uh, like one from whom people hide their faces. Um, and the picture here is that they hide their faces away from him because they do not realize his mission, total apathy. Others had disgust and shame upon him. He wasn't what they expected. He failed them. And they turn away from his sufferings because of what he endured. And it says here um, that we did not esteem him. There's no regard for him. In other words, he has, there's no value in the eyes of spiritually dead men on who Jesus is and what he did. So the second division of this chapter is now in verses four to six. And that talks about the design, the plan for which he endured his sorrows. All right, here in verse four, uh, surely it was our sickness that he himself bore. Now, if you've got a Bible there, you want to circle that word bore, B-O-R-E. And our pains he carried. You want to circle that word carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been flicking, uh, afflicted, uh, smitten down by God and humiliated. Okay, um, this should read in the beginning from the Hebrew, surely our sicknesses he himself bore and our pains he carried. The word surely means truth is being revealed here. Now, if you're taking a little note here, there's two Hebrew words you want to remember. One is called sabal and the other is nasa. Nasa means NASA, like you know, NASA space, N-A-S-A. Okay, sabal is S-A-B-A-L, S-A-B-A-L, and nasa N-A-S-A. Very important words. Uh, the word here, carried, uh, means in Hebrew to carry a heavy burden. The word, let's try that again. I just got that backwards. Sabal <laughs> means in Hebrew to carry a heavy burden. Okay, nasa in Hebrew means to sustain. All right, you got it on you, now you got to sustain it. Sustain this heavy burden that you're going to remove from one person's shoulders to another. Okay, you got that? Sabal, heavy burden, nasa, to pick that burden up from one person and put them on another. Um, now, the important key here is we could spend time on this. Let's do this quickly. In verse 4, he bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. He nasa, our sickness, he sabal, our pains. But when you get to verse 11, those same words show up all over again. But this time in regards to sin, where it tells us he carried, sabal, our iniquities, and nasa, bore our sin. Very serious, those words. Why? Because there are, in Christianity, it's accepted. Jesus, at the atonement, uh, carried our iniquities and bore my sin. 
but so much of Christianity do not believe he did that for sickness. Why then are the exact same words for sin applied to sickness? The only answer is there is both. Jesus in the atonement dealt with sickness and sin in the same way. He bore both the sickness and, and of our sin. He took that off his shoulder as well, our shoulders, and put it on, on his. He treats sin and sickness the same. He carried them both, not only in dealing with sin in the atonement, but also dealing with healing in the atonement. This is an inescapable truth in Hebrew. You cannot escape this. To reject healing in the atonement is to not understand what Jesus did at all at the cross of Calvary. And it's a twofold redemption, sickness and disease and sin. Remember the high priest? He had the two stones on his shoulders that held the ephod pouch, two stones, two redemptions, sickness and disease, twofold. And notice the high priest on his shoulders, he carried it. Jesus carried All this is a foreshadow of what Jesus would do at the cross for us. So that I would not have to carry it myself because I can't. He's my savior to carry it for me. So on verse four here, uh, however, it was our sicknesses that he bore, our pains he carried, and we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck by God, and humiliated. The struck by God or smitten here in Hebrew is the idea that God suddenly struck down in judgment with leprosy, a divine rejection, a divine judgment. Actually, the judgment was Jesus became sin on the cross, and sin on the cross had now been judged. Um, and the people had thought, here, he would be justifiably put to death by the hand of God. But Isaiah reveals to us, this suffering was for us. Verse 5, he was pierced or wounded for our offenses, transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our wrongdoing. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, for by his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. This should read, he was wounded in Hebrew, the word here means to bore through the deepest type of wound possible. He was crushed or bruised for our wrongdoings. Bruised is a better word, but in the Hebrew, it's singular. In other words, he was one massive bruise on the cross. Isn't that wild? A singular word. And under the great weight of pain, on the account of the burden of my sin that he carried. Of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And then in um, Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46, now at the sixth hour fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sakhtani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the cry of mankind. And the answer was, I haven't. That's the sacrifice. God couldn't look at sin because he had become sin on the cross. Wow. And you know, this uh, is the concept now that we learn from Isaiah 53 of what we call substitution and identification. If you look very carefully, if you have your Bibles with you, if you look at verse 5, 
But he, it starts out with a singular pronoun, he. At the end, we are. It starts out with a singular pronoun and ends up with a plural, we. That's the substitution and identification. Now it transfers what you just see what he has, he now did for us. And stripes, of course, is a better word uh, for crushed. Uh, it's, a, it's a snapping of, of, of a whip that leaves a mark, a blow, an imprint in the skin. That those punishments we should have received, he took them for me, that I don't have to. There's the identification and substitution taking place. Verse 6, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned aside to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of all of us to fall upon him. And each of us have chosen our own path, not following the shepherd, thinking that we could survive on our own. Of course, that's independence of God, and that'll end at the grave. The note here, the identification taking place. He chooses to identify with our failings. For the Lord caused the wronging of us all to fall on him. Now we come into the third section of this chapter, verses 7 to 9, which talks about the manner of his sufferings. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. The not opening his mouth is the picture of submission and meekness. He submits to the Father's will. Uh, the lamb, of course, the peace offering, led to the slaughter. You got no resistance from Jesus, no complaint. You'll see many, many times in the Gospels where it says his hour had not come. Nobody took Jesus's life. He gave it up freely. When it was his hour, he submitted. Before that, you couldn't take him if you wanted to. He wasn't accomplished yet at that time. Then we have here verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. For as his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people to whom the blow was due. Um, here we have taken away. Wasn't he arrested in the garden? That's the picture of the Sanhedrin arresting him. Cut off is interesting. Cut off from the land of the living. Um, that has to do with the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, where it says here, then the goat shall carry on itself for all their wrongdoings to an isolated territory, and it shall, the, they shall release the goat in the wilderness. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest puts his hands on the head of the goat, confesses all the sins of the people, which is probably a lot of them, into the goat, and they let him go in the wilderness. He's going to be killed by wild animals. That's a picture of Jesus dying on the cross and going into hell and being surrounded by the evil one, where he defeats the plan of the evil one. Um, so uh, that word cut off in Hebrew always refers to a violent death. And we have on here also in um, two quick readings from Hebrews here, chapter 9, verses 12 and 26. Not through the blood of goats and calves, through his own blood. Otherwise, he suffered, uh, he needed to suffer since the foundation of the world. And now once at the consummation of the ages, he's been revealed to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 10. By his will, we have been sanctified 
through the offering of the, of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Verse 14, for by one offering he perfected for all time all those who are sanctified. That's you and me. Verse 18, now where there is forgiveness of these things, an offering for sin no longer is required. I don't have to do anything to please God. I don't have to go find an offering that God would accept. All that Jesus asks of me and you is to believe him. That's all he asks, that we would believe him and put our faith in him. Okay, verse 9. Um, and his grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Um, interesting, his grave was assigned with the wicked men. That means he didn't, they didn't do with his body what they normally do to people who are crucified. There's only one movie I ever saw that got this right, and it was a secular movie. It was about a centurion who was out to investigate the resurrection of Christ. It was not too many years ago. Anyway, this is the only movie that got it right. When you saw the crucifixion scene, you saw a little slope into a, a gully and all these dead bodies rotting. That's how they crucified. They took the bodies and threw them in the gully to rot. So everyone would smell them and see them and look at the flies and say, that's what happens when you mess with the Roman Empire. Only one movie ever got that right because it's so graphic. So he should have been assigned to the wicked as they lie there at the end of the cross. But no, he was buried with a rich man in his death. It showed that he had no evil or guilt. And um, now this is a heavy one again. Um, not, you got to remember your Bible translators, some of these guys are not born again. They're not perfect people. They're very good at their scholarly work, but sometimes they get things that scratch their heads and they don't know what to do. Yet he was a rich man in his death. The original Hebrew says deaths, plural. I saw it in my own eyes in Hebrew. It says deaths, plural. Not good grammar. So they put death. He was a rich man in his deaths because Jesus died twice on the cross. He died physically and spiritually, just like mankind. Right? Due to spiritual death, all men will experience two deaths. They're dead to God and dead eventually to this world because we're born again. We're now alive unto the Lord. We have escaped the second death, which is spiritual death. Amen. Amen. That's the good news. So yeah, Jesus the man, not Jesus the Christ. God doesn't die on the cross. Jesus the man died spiritually as well as physically. Two deaths, which would be, again, a twofold redemption. Okay. Um, the last section is verses, uh, the fourth division is verses 10 to 13. And uh, in this section, we see here in verse 10, but the Lord desired to bruise him and cause him grief. If he, rendered him, if he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offering. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Um, this is his spiritual posterity that would be brought from his sufferings. Uh, it was the Lord desired to uh, bruise, again, that singular word in Hebrew, one massive bruise. Uh, in other words, Jesus of, uh, went to the obedience of a voluntary suffering and causing him grief. It should read from Hebrew, 
he made him sick. That's the correct translation. He became our sickness on the cross. And the word prolong, of course, here talks about uh, the resurrection, that he will come back and go on. Uh, verse 11, uh, we see here, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear, there's the word sabal again, their wrongdoing. Thus the redemption from sin is spoken of here. This verse, um, the part, first part of the verse talks about he will see the fruits of his suffering and he'll be satisfied. What are the fruits of his suffering? Us. Second part of uh, verse 11, by the knowledge of him, many would be made righteous and saved. Who's that? Us. This is again the great exchange where he receives our punishment and we receive his righteousness. We now have right standing with the Father because of Jesus' accomplishments. So to say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. You were a sinner. You were saved by grace. Now you're the righteousness of God. You no longer have a sin nature. Jesus took that away from you. Now, we have a soul that's not born again. We're spirit, soul, and body. And the soul has to choose every day to walk with the Lord or not. That part of us is not born again. And therefore, we have to uh, choose to walk with the Lord. And we have to promise one day of a new body. That is the fulfillment of our redemption. Okay, here, verse 12. Come here to the end of this. Wow. Uh, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the plunder with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and counted with wrongdoers, yet he himself bore, there's that word nasa again, the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. This verse speaks of the triumph of the Messiah, that he would be greatly honored and proceed to spiritual conquest. I will allot with him a portion with the great. The great are the Old Testament saints before him that walked by faith and followed the Abrahamic covenant. Then he will divide his plunder with the strong. That's us. Those who would walk by faith and not by sight. Connecting the two testaments together. And poured out his life unto death. In other words, his rewards would be relative to the price of his suffering. You and I are his reward. I love to see people that are all nasty and ugly and they get saved. They're trophies for Jesus now, right? They're, they're his rewards, trophies for Jesus. So as we go through this here, we see that Jesus receives us as an inheritance and divides his accomplishments with us. We really got to get that. Because of Jesus, the promises of God in my Bible are yes. I, he gets to share them with me. And I didn't do anything to earn them. He freely bestows them. If, if you were financially well off, would you make your children suffer? Of course not. You would share your success with them that they would have a life easier than maybe you had because you want them to have a better life. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Took his accomplishments and gave them to us. 
And that last one here, interceded for the wrongdoers. In other words, his whole work here of Isaiah 53 is an intercession before the Father, and it's the present-day ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this is still something that lives today. Uh, now, and of course, when you, if you, we continue to read Isaiah, which we're not, Isaiah 54 and 55, follow 53. 54 then is the covenant of peace that results from Isaiah 53. And when you get to chapter 55, it talks about the new relationship we can have as a result of this covenant of peace. It's like a foreshadow of what the gospel message is in chapter 55. So I want to make a very important closing comment here. Why are we doing this tonight? Why bother? Why so much detail? Because we need to be convinced Jesus took my sin and my sickness. We need to be convinced of it. I need to be more convinced of it than my own name. Why? Because I have an adversary, the evil one, who will lie to you and to me all my life and tell us we're not forgiven. Healing's not for you. The things you did in life were so bad, it can't be forgiven. Yeah, other people will get healed. They're better than you. You won't. And we have to make sure we spot those as lies and that you never give it one minute of entertainment in our minds. Because if you believe those lies, you'll seek after another salvation, which is I'm going to earn my way with God by my dead works, which will amount to nothing. And if you don't receive the thought of healing, you'll go like everybody else, begging God, trying to convince him to do for you what Christ has already done for you. That's why you have to be so convinced. Because if you don't believe healing's in the atonement, like so many Christian churches out there, they beg God for, to heal them. Why are you begging God to do something he already did? That is sheer ignorance. And they receive nothing from God. Because we receive only by faith. We have to be that sure, folks, that we don't believe the lies. Isaiah 53 is our uh, legal groundwork and proof of who Jesus is and what he did. The, the, the evil one does not want us to have any assurance of God's love for us. Nothing. He doesn't want you in faith. He doesn't want you speaking the word of God out of your mouth. He wants you totally ineffective this side of heaven. Oh, isn't that nice? You're going to heaven. Huh. And that's all he wants us to believe, that we would leave a defeated life this side of heaven. He wants us to have no confidence in Christ and have all the confidence in ourselves. He wants us to know all about God, but don't have a relationship with him. That's a choice for you and I that we have to make decisions about. Do I believe he took my sin? Do I believe he took my sickness at the cross? Then I'm going to speak it out of my mouth and live like that and believe like that. There is no plan B. We have to. I invite our healing teams to come up. Um, you know, if you're here tonight, and please come up. <laughs> if if um, you're here tonight and you need healing in your mortal body, isn't that good to know? Jesus made already the way for you. 
Let someone help you and pray with you to accomplish that. Maybe you have dear loved ones now that are suffering and they don't know this and you can stand in proxy for them. We have a merciful, loving God. Let's stand in proxy for them for their need. But if you need healing today in your mortal body, don't leave this building without getting prayer. Because sometimes we need help. Sometimes we need somebody to help stand alongside of us and believe with us. And these folks know how to pray for that and uh, they would like to do that for you. So if there's anybody here that has a need for that, please come on up as we close tonight. Uh, but by all means, don't forget the God of Isaiah 53. It's your, it's your uh, covenant document that Jesus has taken my sin. Jesus has taken my sickness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for a complete redemption. Nothing lacks. You did it all. I don't have to add anything. I can be at peace and know that I don't have to talk my God into anything. He's already bestowed it upon me. There's a freedom there. That's good to know. That's good to know. Let's just pray here. Father God, I just would ask that we would walk out of here, Lord God, with an assurance today of the God of Isaiah 53, the God of the atonement, the Jesus who made the great substitution and identification for me, that he became what, for me, what I needed that I would receive what he gave me. That, Lord God, we would walk in this, Father God, as a, as a conscious awareness all our days, Lord God, that our covenant God is our forgiver, our healer, and that I have been made the very righteousness of Jesus by just believing in his final work, that I can add nothing to it and accept it so graciously. We thank you for this, Father, today, that this would be real in us in these days ahead. In the name of Jesus, amen.